All right, welcome to uh, First Corinthians. You should have some notes uh, that are being passed out. And uh, Wes has got them. Everybody got some notes? Okay. There's some notes from previous weeks here, uh, week one and week two. The notes are also available on the website. If you go to the website, the notes are there and audio recordings of the, all the sessions are there also. <clears throat> so we're looking at week three. I gotta get a copy of these because I gotta see what I said at the top. <laughs> the foolishness of the gospel. Now notice I got foolishness in quotation marks there, okay? Because that's Paul's word. Not necessarily what we would say, but Paul says that here in uh, in uh, chapter 1. But first, unfortunately, <clears throat> there is a quiz. There's always a quiz. <laughs> the Corinthians suffered from over-realized eschatology. True. True. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if I'll take time to explain all what over-realized eschatology is again, but we'll talk about it when we get there again. Number two. Paul was unable to thank God for the spiritual gifts of the Corinthians. False. False. He does, remember, in that first Thanksgiving there. Even though the gifts are not being used to edify others as they should be, they're still spiritual gifts given by God. Number three, Paul had baptized most of the church at Corinth. False. False. Remember, he says... I thank God I didn't baptize some of you because people were rallying around certain leaders and based upon identification with them. Four, when Paul said Christ did not send me to baptize, it demonstrates his view that baptism was not necessary for the obedient Christian. False. False. It just said, I'm just glad uh, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. I'm an apostle. My job is to establish churches. Others can baptize. It's not necessary for an apostle to baptize. Then, number five, the church at Corinth had split up into separate groups who were meeting in different locations. False. Remember I said these divisions were internal divisions, differences of opinion within the church, but they weren't meeting at different locations. We'll see something about their location meeting when we get to chapter 11 in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. Well, we're looking at... uh, Today, um, we've looked at um, <clears throat> the introduction, verses 1 through 9. We're looking at the next major section, Roman numeral 2, a church divided internally and against Paul. And we looked at the problem last week, A, in verses 10 through 17. Division over leaders in the name of wisdom. So they had differences of opinion. They were rallying, rallying around different leaders. Some said, I'm, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas. And wisdom refers to the Greek philosophical tradition. Remember we said that in ancient Greece, uh, in Rome, you had these uh, people who were very good at rhetoric, at speaking, philosophy, and they would come into town and speak and gather disciples. They would actually charge for their lessons to teach and so forth. And they see Paul's coming and, and Apollos is coming and others coming in and out as sort of that same kind of tradition. And Paul has to disabuse them of these false ideas. So they have these divisions. 
Now, what we see in 118 through 421 is the reason. He states the problem before that they have these divisions, divisive opinions. But what's the reason? Why are they doing this? And that's what we see in the rest of this major section, 118 through 421. So chapters 1 through 4 is dealing with this problem of divisions in the church. Chapters 5 and 6 deal with two other, other issues. Chapter 7 deals with a different issue. 8 through 10 deals with a different issue. 11 deals with a different issue. 12. So we have the chapters divide up here among various issues. But 1 through 4 is mainly this issue about these divisions in the church. Now Paul's going to discuss, in the rest from 118 through 421, the uh, reasons for these problems. And the reason, as we state here, uh, number one, is a misunderstanding of the gospel message. And that takes us from chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 4. Um. A misunderstanding of the gospel message. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, um, the first thing we see here, Paul says, is he talks about um, the what we call what I call here the foolishness of the gospel, and I'm taking that from Paul's own words here. This is one eighteen through two five. I say here um, the uh, the cross is not something to which one may add human wisdom and thereby make it superior. Rather, the cross stands in absolute, uncompromising contradiction to human wisdom. Human wisdom has not led people to the true God, but actually away from God. The cross is considered foolishness to wisdom humanly conceived, but it's what we might call God's, quote, foolishness. Foolishness, that is, at the same time, his wisdom and power. So Paul is saying, in effect, you think of the gospel as some form of Greek wisdom, Greek philosophical tradition wisdom. And Paul says, that's foolish. That's nonsense. The gospel is not some sort of Greek wisdom. That's a very foolish idea. And he's going to prove that by giving some uh, uh, points here. He's going to say, first of all, let's look at the message. If we look at the message... Uh, it's not the kind of message that would be what you would find in a normal Greek philosophical tradition or in any tradition today, that is. Uh, because it's the message of a crucified Messiah. The idea of a crucified Messiah is not the kind of message that would normally appeal to people, as we'll see. Who would dream up the idea of a crucified Messiah? We'll see what that what that entails. So first of all, he says, <clears throat> we're going to look at the message, and the message is not something that appeals to human wisdom. Secondly, he says, that's 118 through 25. Then in 126 through 31, he says, we're going to look at the recipients. Let's take a look at the people who received the message. That's you, Corinthians. And if we look at you, <coughs> then... You're not the kind of people, as he says, he's going to say here, uh, you're not the kind of people who are the elite, the leaders, the wise. You're not the kind of people that uh, get all the attention. Uh, if we look at who the gospel appeals to, it doesn't necessarily appeal 
to people who think them, themselves to be wise and great and rich and powerful. And then finally, he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, you know, he's talking about the foolishness of the gospel. The gospel is foolish in the sense we, the message appears to be foolish. The people who accept it appear to be rather foolish, he says. And he says, look at the guy who preached it, the Apostle Paul, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. I don't fit the frame of these normal Greek, uh, philosophers, sophists, wise speakers. I'm not that kind of guy. I came in weakness. I don't dress the finest way. I don't look the greatest and so forth. <clears throat> so let's look at those. We'll see first of all here, when we talk about the foolishness of the gospel, Paul says there's a sense in which the gospel is foolish in the content of the message. Now, you would never say that yourself, but Paul says there's a sense. Looked at from the human perspective, there's a sense in which the gospel appears foolish. For the message of the cross, he says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So human wisdom and the message of the cross are mutually exclusive. This exclusivity can be seen in how it divides mankind in two groups, to two groups, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Both these are sort of present uh, processes that are going on. Remember, Paul will say later in chapter 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. So the natural person, the unsaved person, <clears throat> their natural reaction to the gospel is, Ah, uh, this is just a bunch of nonsense. This is rather foolishness, especially to someone, as we'll see, in the Greco-Roman world. Now, it's not quite the same here in our country because we have a tradition, a Christian tradition. We have 2,000 years of Christianity and in our country and so forth. <clears throat> so we don't get quite the negative reaction that Paul got in his day. Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Paul now moves on to argue that his, this foolishness of God with its message of the cross is in fact God's way of doing what he said he would do in the Old Testament. Set aside and destroy human wisdom of fallen creatures. His proof here is Isaiah 29, 14. So Paul is saying God deliberately chose this message of a crucified Messiah so that it wouldn't be appealing to man's natural intelligence. Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? These questions in verse 20 continue the point of the quotation in verse 19. Paul is expressing the sarcasm of a passage like Isaiah 19.12 in which the prophet asks, in light of what God was about to do, where now are the wise men? So Paul is saying here, or he's asking here, in view of what God has done in the cross, what's left of the wise of the present age? Now Paul mentions various categories of people in his day who were thought to be experts, the wisest people in the world, the teacher of the law, the philosopher of this age, the wise person. 
as I say here, the cross is considered foolishness to those who are perishing, but the very message of salvation through the cross work of Christ has made foolishness out of the world, which is based entirely on human self-sufficiency. And Paul will now explain how this is so. So the point is, if you said, okay, where are the wisest people around here, maybe? University of Michigan, right? <laughs> Let's go to the University of Michigan. After last it's, night, I think it's uh, East Lansing. Oh, East Lansing. Okay. <laughs> <coughs> well, you can debate that, you know. <laughs> but you could go to East Lansing. You might go to, you know, the philosophy department. Go to the science department and so forth. You're not going to find, a, you know, that place is not teeming with evangelical Christians, I can tell you there, you know. If you go to the largest corporations, the smartest people, you go to the big accounting firms, very smart people, really brilliant people, it's not teeming with Christians. It's not You don't see signs, you know, we love Jesus and all that on the walls of the firms and all that. That's not the place where you find that kind of thing. Now, here's what, here's, Paul's going to explain why this is so. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of the God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So Paul now sets out to explain to the Corinthians how what he has just said is true. He begins with a statement on which he assumes he and they will agree, namely that the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. So Paul says in his day, the pagan world had not come to know the true God in our day. The world has not come to know the true God. People are not rushing to get to CBC this morning, you know. It's not packed out uh, with people. They're not rushing in. On their own, through the wisdom that belongs to their fallen existence, human beings fail to know God altogether. A correct understanding of what God has done only comes when we're regenerated through the Spirit, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So, Paul says here, in the wisdom of God means in God's wise plan. Paul says all along it was part of God's providential plan that he so arranged things. So it was God's plan all along to confound human wisdom because a God discovered by human wisdom would simply be a projection of human fallenness. It would be a source of pride. It would constitute worship of the creature rather than the creator. Remember, Paul will say in chapter 1 of Romans, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and beasts and animals. So what does man do in his wisdom? He doesn't turn to God. He turns to idols. He turns to something else. He rejects the true God. And so Paul says this was God's plan all along. God is not God. God knows that a, a, a God discovered by human wisdom is simply going to be a reflection of humanity. That is, we 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 worship we we worship or human beings worship what they think God should be. You know what I mean? If God, they want a God that they like. <laughs> They want a God that meets their qualifications, you know. I would I would worship God if he was like this, if he did this, you know. It's always if. 
If, if God was really, if there was really a God, he would be like this. And Paul, and Paul says, that's what, uh, that's why God did what he did. He doesn't want, he doesn't want a message that appeals to human wisdom that brings about pride, humans own pride. Paul says God was pleased to bring people into a proper relationship with him through the foolishness of what was preached. So through the message, the, the, the Greek word there, kerugma, means the King James is, you know, is funny there because it says God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save. You know, I've heard guys down south have talked about the foolishness of preaching. I ain't got no education. <laughs> I'm just a foolish preacher. But God, you know, preaching is not foolish. You know, Pastor Ken spends a lot of time preparing to preach. It's not foolishness. So we're not talking about the act of preaching here. It's not the foolishness of the act of preaching. It's foolishness of the message. Paul says the world considers the message of a crucified Messiah to be foolishness. God's purpose is to save those who believe. Verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. So Paul divides the perishing into two basic groups, the Jews and Greeks. These illustrate the two basic idolatries of human beings. So both Jews and Greeks, they insist that God conform to their own prior views of how things should be, how things ought to be. They expect God to submit to their prior criteria. It says the Jews demand signs. Remember, they always telling Jesus, show us a sign, show us a miracle, then we'll believe. So the, the idolatry of the Jews here is they demanded that God fit their conception of God. If you're really God, you'll do these miracles. They saw the miracles of the Exodus, so they had God figured out. If God's really God, he'll do the kind of miracles. If this Jesus is really the Messiah, he'll do the kind of miracles we want him to do. If he doesn't do it, then we're going to reject him. Greeks look for wisdom. This, too, was a natural characteristic, as early as Herodotus. It was said of them, <clears throat> all Greeks were zealous for every kind of learning. So their idolatry was to conceive of God as ultimate reason, meaning what they thought was reasonable. So human beings think, God should be what I think him to be. I was like, reading the late uh, evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould. I don't know if he was always on TV, he was on programs, but he's a very famous evolutionary biologist uh, refuting, refuting Christianity, refuting Christians, and so forth. Here's what he says. He said this. He said, the general theory... Uh, the general theory of evolution teaches that all living, well, I say this, the general theory of evolution teaches that all living forms in the world have arisen from a single source, which itself came from an inorganic form. This is the classic theory of evolution taught in biology courses in many schools. According to the late famous Harvard evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould, quote, it functions with or without a creator as long as the creator works by natural laws. So what Stephen Jay Gould is saying if you Christians want to believe in your God, you can, as long as he conforms himself to what we know is true in science. Right? As long as he conforms to natural laws, okay, you can have your God, that's okay, but he can only operate as we say, as we have discovered, as science discovers. Now, if we discover something different, you'll have to, you know, he operates differently depending on how we discover 
So it's all based upon man's wisdom, what he thinks, his view of God. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Instead of seeking, instead of giving the seekers of signs and wisdom what they wanted, God gave them something shocking. But we preach Christ crucified. Rather than giving them the signs and wonders they demanded, they get weakness and folly. Christ crucified is a kind of a contradiction in terms, sort of like fried ice. From a human point of view, it's impossible to have a crucified Messiah. Messiah, the Jewish concept of Messiah, is the anointed one. He is the powerful king. He comes in splendor. He triumphs, you see. And that was the Jewish problem with Jesus at his first coming, too. How could this guy, he seems to be the Messiah, but he's not, he doesn't really act like the Messiah, you know? He's not kicking the Romans out. He's not, he hadn't had his army here. What's going on? There's some problem with this Messiah. And so Jews and uh, Greeks were scandalized by this Christian message. Uh, uh, To Jews, Jesus died as a state criminal, both the Jews and Greeks. He died as a state criminal. Um, He was crucified. Uh, The Jews, of course, you remember the Old Testament says, if a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone that's hung on a tree is under God's curse. So you don't have the Messiah on a cross. That's a sign of God's curse. The Romans only crucified the very worst criminals. It was just the absolute worst. Rebellious, terrorists, just people. They didn't crucify Roman citizens generally. They were exempt. But just uh, they just crucified others uh, as, a, as an example of what happens to you. And so, so to the Jews it's a problem. The Messiah was hung on a tree. That's a sign of a curse. That's not the, that just doesn't compute with our view of what the Messiah should be. I say to the Gentiles, the message of crucified, Christ crucified was a pernicious superstition, according to the Roman historian Tacitus, and a perverse, extravagant superstition, according to Pliny the Younger. In other words, to the Gentiles, Christ crucified was complete foolishness. I mean, this is, this is utter nonsense. I mean, see, we, it's hard for us to grasp this, but, you know, we used to have uh, death by the electric chair, right? Death by the electric chair. <clears throat> and let's say that was still around. It's, I guess around in some states. But it would be like us wearing a little lapel pin of an electric chair on our coats or something, you know? Uh, wearing a... Instead of wearing a cross around our neck, we're wearing a little electric chair. See, that's what that cross represented to the Romans. That was a despicable thing. Only the worst kind of people are crucified. That it just—it was at least a hundred years before the cross was even used as a symbol by Christians, because it was such a contemptible thing. It was a terrible thing. It's just—it's just the worst kind of people. Only the scum, the terrible people, would be crucified. So that was just very, very difficult. A stumbling block to the Jews, and that's just utter foolishness. If you're saying, are you telling me? I mean, it's like me telling you. There's some guy who was electrocuted in prison, 
And if you have faith in him, you'll have salvation. That's what. That's how it would appear to a Roman when you say, we, that we crucified this guy and you're saying he's the Messiah, he's God. and That's just utter foolishness. Verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. From any merely human perspective, the central message of the Christian gospel must always appear as foolish. But to people from both groups whom God has called to salvation, this foolishness turns out to be the power of God. Verse 25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Paul now concludes his argument with a theological principle. God is both wiser and more powerful than human beings. The message of the cross appears to be foolishness to human wisdom. But it ultimately turns out to be wiser because it brings salvation. Thus, what appears to be weakness, a crucified Messiah, is actually more powerful than human power. So by choosing the cross and the way God has provided salvation, he sort of outsmarted humans. In their human wisdom, they would never figure this thing out. They would never devise this as the way of salvation. So in a sense, he's nullified human wisdom. You can't, you can't by human wisdom, uh, save your way to God. So Paul says, first of all, there's a, we're talking about the reason for these divisions in the church. And it revolves around a misunderstanding of the gospel. The, the, uh, the, Corinthians are thinking that the gospel is some sort of Greek philosophy and something that would appeal to men and that kind of thing to human beings. And Paul says, no, there's a sense to the unsaved person that the gospel is really foolishness. It's foolishness in the content of its message because the idea of a guy getting crucified on a cross, that appears to be foolishness. God chose that so men would not be able to say, hey, look how smart I am. I figured this thing out. Secondly, it's foolish with respect to the recipients of the message, Paul says. Uh, 126 through 31. Not only is the gospel message viewed as foolishness by an unbelieving world, but we believers who receive the message of the gospel are also viewed in a similar way. This is because of the kind of people whom God normally chooses for salvation. So God chose the Corinthians, Paul is saying, who were not from among the world's beautiful people. The Corinthians were mostly, as we read the letter, from the lower classes of society there. Uh, now, there were some wealthy people there, we know, and so forth. <clears throat> I'll mention a minute. But what, what Paul is saying here, um, the Corinthians themselves are evidence of the foolishness which God uses to confound the wise. God doesn't, God doesn't, as I said, if you're trying to find the most Christians, the University of Michigan is not the place to go. I'm sure there's some very fine Christians there, but that's not the place to go. It's not to the big accounting firms. It's not to the halls of Congress, <laughs> you know, <laughs> necessarily to find the Christians necessarily. It's not to the most powerful people. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called, called to salvation. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Paul advised the Corinthians to consider or think about what they were like when they were called to salvation. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So the irony here, the strange thing, is the Corinthians are judging Paul's gospel by human standards, which if they apply those standards to themselves, they don't come out very well. You know, they don't, they don't, uh, the, the Corinthians are not the elites, the powerful, the important people. Although Paul says not many, he was of course aware that the fact that some in the church were in fact well off by human standards. Crispus, Gaius, Erastus, the city clerk, Stephanus. But primarily, as we look at the church, it was not composed of people of very upper classes. It was just average folk. And that's true in most of our churches. If we look here, you know, we don't have, I mean, the governor's not here today, and the mayor of Trenton's not here, right? <clears throat> or Woodhaven, or Southgate, or I think any city around, or, you know, are there any council people here? No, no probably no. Oh, no. You know, it's not, we're not the kind of place they flock to. The gospel is offensive. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. A look at the Corinthian church demonstrates that the majority of them were not part of the elite of this world, but just common folk. The reason for this makeup is now clear. God chose people from a particular socioeconomic background in Corinth to be saved for a particular purpose, in order to shame the world and bring it to its to it bring and bring it to nothing. Except for the word wise, all the adjectives are neuter in the original Greek. Things. That's why we have those words. God chose foolish things. Weak things. God chose lowly things. Now, in spite of the fact that he's used things, he's talking about people here. He's talking about people. As I say, Paul's describing the Corinthians with these terms. The idea is something like the help or the hired hands. No one of importance is what he's saying. He uses the neuter concept. Instead of the wise, God chose the foolish things of the world. Or what the world counts foolish. Instead of the influential, influential, God chose the weak things of the world. Instead of the noble birth, God chose the lowly. <clears throat> but what God did in the cross and in calling the lowly Corinthians illustrates that he's not beholden to the world. Thus he's not only accountable, not only thus he's not only not accountable to the wise of this world. But by his gracious activity in Christ, he has actually shamed the wise. Now, when he says he has shamed the wise, uh, to shame the strong, to shame them, he doesn't mean, he's not talking about feelings of shame here. Um, he doesn't mean that they, they feel the shame. He's picked up an Old Testament theme, theme here, which speaks about God's judgment and God's vindication. Um, the vindication of God over his enemies. Uh, here's like Psalm 35, 26 through 27. May all who gloat over my distress be put to shame and confusion. May all who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and disgrace. May those who delight in my vindication shout for joy and gladness may 
they always say, the Lord be exalted who delights in the well-being of his servant. So what Paul is saying here, God has disgraced the wise, the influential, those of noble birth, by overturning their warped perspective. Um, In other words, the wise of this world have not found God, unfortunately, in all their wisdom. They have not found God. It has not led to God. The Corinthians are the things that are not, the nothings, which God chose to nullify the things that are. So through Christ crucified and God's subsequent calling of the Corinthians to be participants in this great salvation, God has chosen the things that are not, he says, to render ineffective the things that are. The wise with their this age point of view and so forth. So, you know, it's just amazing, you know. Here's the lowly person, very little education, not very bright, but knows Jesus, you know. He's got it all over the guy with three PhDs, you know what I mean? And doesn't and, and scoffs at God. It's just that's what God has done to show he's not beholden to any human being. <clears throat> One must, as we'll see, submit. Verse 29, so that why has he done all this? So that no one may boast before him. With this clause, Paul expresses the ultimate purpose of God's plan. In order that no one may boast before God. God deliberately chose the foolish things of the world. The cross, the Corinthian believers, so that there could be no boasting in his presence. So by choosing these lowly Corinthians for the most part... God has declared that he's forever ruled out every human system, every imaginable human system of gaining his favor. Humans think up ways that they could gain someone's favor, but that's not the way he gains God's favor. It's trust him completely or nothing. That's what it amounts to. It's trust him completely, as verse 31 will say. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. One has to put full confidence. One has to boast in the Lord, not in themselves. We can't go to the Lord and boast about our accomplishments and what our, our, how, how we did this and how we accomplished this. No, it's we have to boast in the Lord. Every other form of boasting is wrong. One has to put confidence in God, his mercy. Verse 30, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It's because of God. Who has become for us, that is Jesus has come become for us, wisdom from God. So we found the true wisdom. We found the true wisdom from God through Jesus Christ. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I say it's totally because of God and his electing grace, God chose, verse 27, that the Corinthians are Christians. They're in Christ Jesus. Paul asserts that God made Christ to become true wisdom for us, which is then immediately interpreted in salvific terms, in terms of salvation. That is, he says, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So what Paul is saying here, God has made Christ to become true wisdom for us by accepting Christ, by humbling ourselves and accepting God's plan. Christ has become true wisdom. 
It's not the kind of wisdom of which the Corinthians are enamored. They're enamored with the wrong kind of wisdom. But true wisdom is to be understood in terms of these three terms. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Um, So these represent three aspects of salvation. Righteousness stands for justification. When we're saved, you know, we're declared righteous. Even though we're sinners, we get reset, we receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and we are justified. We are declared righteous. We have a right standing. So Bill Combs can be assured he's going to get into heaven because he has this right standing, he has this righteousness that was imputed to his account by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. So righteousness, holiness, this speaks about our present experience, sanctification, maturity, holiness, growing in holiness. And redemption, in this case, like a lot of other places, redemption speaks of a future aspect. Redemption can be used of a past aspect. We can say, I have been redeemed. But it's often used in a future sense. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So there's a future redemption of our bodies. So Paul is using this past, present, and future here. Here's true wisdom. It's in the plan of salvation. God has declared us righteous. He's working on us now to make us holy. And one day we'll be perfectly redeemed when we have that new glorified body. So we see that there is wisdom with God, but it's opposite from the human wisdom that the Corinthians currently delight in and squabble over. Wisdom does not have to do with getting smart, nor with status or rhetoric. God's wisdom has to do with salvation through Christ Jesus. And all of this is made clear in that final purpose clause. Just as the ultimate goal of God of God's uh, in God's choosing the foolish thing was to eradicate human boasting in his presence. So on the positive side, he says here, the final goal of the work of Christ was to make possible one true ground of boasting. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast, trust in the Lord. So Paul says... There's a sense in which the gospel is foolishness. Remember, he's he's counteracting their nonsense because they think the gospel is some form of Greek wisdom. And he says, no, it's not. The message of the cross is not like that at all. In fact, you could say there's a sense in which the message is foolishness itself. It's talking about a crucified Messiah, something that doesn't appeal to human wisdom at all. It's foolishness when you look at the people, you know, when you look at the people, uh, you know, if you, people who go to see, uh, I should use Tony Robbins again, you know, there are people with money and wealth and, you know, generally, that kind of thing. But also, he says, it's foolish with respect to the minister or preacher of the message, 2, 1 through 5. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim the test to you the testimony about God. To conclude his argument, Paul reminds the Corinthians about the character of his own preaching when he was among them. Both its form, form, and its content. 
In the plan of the cross and in choosing the Corinthians, God, in effect, eliminated human boasting so that the only boast left is in the Lord. And when Paul came to Corinth, he demonstrated the same reality. He was totally stripped of self-reliance so that God's power could be manifested and so that the Corinthians' faith might rest on God alone. So rather than engaging in rhetoric or philosophy, Paul was bearing witness to God, that is, what God had done in Christ to effect salvation, as verse 2 will explain. Here's what Paul was talking about, verse 2. For I resolve to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul did not attempt to distinguish himself in either eloquence or philosophical reasoning because he had already resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. To know nothing does not mean that he left all other knowledge aside, but rather that he had the gospel with his crucified message as his singular focus and passion while he was among them. Verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Paul continues the description of his preaching, but now it focuses less on the form of the preaching and more directly on the preacher. It's impossible to know the exact form of Paul's coming to them in weakness. It most likely refers, referring to some observable physical condition. Probably the best we can do is to take weakness, weakness to refer to his sufferings, hardships, and whatever can detract from the standing and dignity of someone in the estimation of people. I mean, Paul was going around, <clears throat> you know, Macedonia before he got to Corinth, and he got beaten up in Philippi and Thessalonica and so forth, and goes to Athens. You know, he's he's not in the best of shape, you know. He he probably didn't have time to visit the tailors in Athens, you know, and get get his new suit and all that kind of thing. So he may not look the best, you know. He's he he's it's not like he has a lot of funds to keep himself up. He has to work with his own hands in Corinth, you know, when he comes to Corinth he doesn't apparently have any funds. He has to immediately find some way to work. The main point is that for Paul, there was a genuine correspondence between his own personal weakness and his gospel. At the heart of his preaching stood the weakness of God, the story of a crucified Messiah. His own weakness served as a further visible demonstration of the same message, but even more to demonstrate that the message was of divine, not human origin. So it wasn't Paul that was the attractive thing. It was the message that was going to do the job. Although with weakness, along with weakness, he adds, with great fear and trembling. So I came to you in weakness. I was fearful. I was trembling. We think of the Apostle Paul often as, uh, he's this giant of a guy and he just runs around. You know, he never has a fear. He never has a doubt. He just, well, that's not what he says here. I came to you with great fear and trembling. This may refer to, In Acts 18, Paul is at Corinth. He establishes a church in Acts 18. And one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in the vision. Do not be afraid. Obviously, it sounds like Paul was afraid. (laughs) Because the Lord says, don't be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one's going to attack and harm you. 
because I have many people in this city. This is the city of Corinth. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. So Paul obviously was fearful. I mean, this is he's, this, he's under difficult circumstances. You know, he says uh, he was beaten three times with rods, with Roman rods. We know one of those was um, in Philippi when he was beaten by the Roman authorities. But he says in 2 Corinthians, three times I was beaten with rods. And he got the 39 stripes a number of times from Jewish authorities. So he was always running into trouble, harassment, persecution. Verse 4. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul does not glory in his weakness for the Corinthians' own sake. He does so to remind them that the real power in the gospel transformation does not lie in the person or the presentation of the preacher, but in the work of the Spirit. My message and my preaching refer to the content and the form of Paul's actual delivery. He deliberately avoided the very thing that now fascinates them, the persuasion of wisdom. Now, we're not saying here, Paul is not saying that his preaching did not lack persuasion, but what it lacked was the kind of persuasion among the sophists and the rhetoricians, where the power lay in the person and their delivery. Paul's preaching, on the other hand, despite his personal appearance, whatever that may have been, whatever it was, it produced the desired results. It was powerful in that it brought salvation and sanctification to these Corinthians. That's what he means by righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So this very coming of the Corinthians to faith showed it did not lack power. When we talk about the power of the Spirit, I want to see the power of the Spirit in my church. Here's how you see it. Salvation and sanctification. Salvation of souls and maturity of believers. You're seeing the power of God at work. Um, So what accompanied uh, Paul's preaching was not a demonstration of the power. Paul's point is even though he was weak in preaching, he lacked rhetoric, the Corinthians' very coming to faith demonstrated that it did not lack power. The demonstration of the Spirit's power has reference, as I said, to the conversion of the Corinthians. And, of course, there are accompanying gifts, and also, uh, true, they have gifts. Here's what uh, Fee says, Gordon Fee. He says, Thus, what Paul is rejecting is not preaching, not even persuasive preaching. Rather, it's the real danger in all preaching, self-reliance. The danger always lies in letting the form and content get in the way of what should be the single concern. The gospel proclaimed through human weakness but accompanied by the powerful work of the Spirit so that lives are changed through a divine human encounter. And that's what Paul is saying. So Paul has said so far that you have these divisions because... um, you have a wrong view of the gospel. 
you misunderstand the gospel message, you don't understand your own selves, who the gospel came to, you, you don't really understand the preacher and his role and so forth. And so there's a sense in which all these are foolishness, that the message is foolish, you're foolish, the preacher's foolish. But now he's going to turn around next week when we get to chapter 2, verse 6 here, and say, okay, let's turn this around. There is a sense in which the gospel is wisdom. Uh, Remember, he doesn't like the word wisdom. That's their term. But he's saying the gospel is not the kind of wisdom you're thinking of. But there is a sense in which the gospel is wisdom. It's God's wisdom because it brings salvation to people. It changes people's lives. It's revealed by the Spirit, as we'll see next time. Let's pray and we'll close. Father, thank you for this time together today. We pray that you'll give us receptive hearts to the truth of what Paul is preaching here. Help us to see that our our own proclamation of the gospel to others as we try to tell others and influence others, it's not up to us and our great rhetoric and great ability. We do want to be able to explain the gospel clearly as we can, but we know we depend upon this work of the Spirit to change people's lives, to bring them from darkness into light. And so help us, Lord, to depend upon you and trust you in all these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.